The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning, listeners from around the world, and a warm welcome to my guest, Peter Mayhew. Peter, you and I have known for each other for too many years to count. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Francie. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, uh, and you're a licensed private investigator in both California and Nevada. I am. How did you get into the private investigation business? Desperation. <laughs> and, and the desperation was what? I was a chief investigator of the district attorney's office in uh, Beaver County, Arizona, and in 1983, I found out I was only making uh, $30,000 a year with three children, and uh, uh, it didn't work uh, financially and had to do something else, so I decided to try private investigations and uh, did so. Now, was uh, at that time, was private investigations required to be licensed? No. Okay. So, so you actually started in, California, in Arizona? California it was. In Arizona it was not. Okay, in Arizona it wasn't. Okay. And then you, uh, when did you start Global Intelligence Network? 1997. Okay. But prior to that you had Trademark, trademark Protection, protection Services. Services, which became the uh, largest trademark protection company in the United States, protecting copyrights from, uh, I would say, every major movie studio in the in the United States. Yes, and I remember that. Walt Disney and 20th Century Fox and... Uh, Warner Brothers and yeah. uh, California uh, Grapes. Hmm. Uh, Hard Rock Cafe. Uh, Disney. Yeah. A lot, of, yeah. a lot of clients. It was a good company and made a lot of money. Yeah, it was a good company. And you had that how, for how many years, Peter? About 14. Yeah. 13 and or then, 14. I'm sorry. Um, and then Global Intelligence, uh, tell us what you specialize in there. Well, we, we, uh, my mom and dad were getting older, and uh, I was financially okay enough to come up to Las Vegas and uh, decided to start Global Intelligence Network and concentrate in the gaming industry where we conduct mostly international investigations on due diligence for corporations that are going to merge with overseas corporations, um, primarily gaming companies or gaming individuals. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nevada law requires gaming licensees to maintain the same standards in their partners that they have to maintain in themselves to hold their gaming licenses, which means they have to be investigated. So we've done about uh, 20,000 international investigations in over 100 countries on everything from individuals to, to major corporations. Yeah, and just let me give our listeners a heads up. Peter and I were just talking before we went on the air. He's going to be doing a show in the future on the gaming industry and the transition from organized crime to regulation. So that should be really interesting, Peter, and I appreciate you uh, being willing to do that show. No problem, Francie. So that's a heads up for all of you guys. Keep an, keep an eye open for that show. So um, you're also the president of Nevada Society of Professional Investigators? I am. And you're 
you were a member of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Use of Force Board. I was. I was. And I'm now a member of the uh, Citizens Review Board. Okay. And what does that do? It evaluates uh, complaints that are not satisfactorily answered by the police internal affairs committees or boards, whatever structure they're operating under. And it's a citizens panel that uh, takes the complaint and reviews a police response to a citizen's complaint and uh, uh, reevaluates it and, and then either does nothing or recommends action to, uh, to improve the uh, standard operating procedures of the police department. Interesting. Um, and in some cases, disciplines officers. Okay, all right. It's not primarily a disciplinary board. It's primarily a, another look board. I, I would call it. Uh, we're looking for a solution, not a not not to create additional issues. Okay, and then you also do training for on the organized crime and gaming industry for. I do. I do for the International yeah. Masters of Gaming Law for the. International Association of Gaming Attorneys, Tulane University, the California uh, Department of Gaming, uh, the National Indian Gaming, uh, Tribal Gaming Commission. As a matter of fact, I'll be in San Diego next month. It's a national gaming tribal um, uh, conference uh, doing a seminar on international vendor investigations and mm. How do you operate in these countries overseas? Fascinating. So I'm looking forward to it when we do the show on, on that topic. But what we're going to talk about today is Howard Hughes. And the way you got involved with Howard Hughes was through your father's company. Am I correct on that? That's correct. That's correct. My, uh, when I was a very young man, and I'm not going to tell you how young or how old <laughs> or how many years ago, uh, I went to work for CIA in Washington, D.C., and I met my wife. Uh, I can tell you that we were there in the CIA headquarters building the day Kennedy was killed, uh, which quite, was quite an interesting day. But it, mm-hmm. that said, uh, again, for some reason, our combined salaries at CIA uh, would not support a marriage and a child, and uh, my dad was kind enough or good enough or... or didn't want to hear me whining enough that he uh, he gave me a job in his organization, which uh, became the primary representative for Howard Hughes and in, in the and uh, all the things that Hughes did during the seventies. And it was a good opportunity, and then I took it and uh, left the Central Intelligence Agency and went to went to work for my dad and uh, uh, learned a lot. And, uh, worked very closely in the Hughes organization here for four, four and a half years or so. So I invited Peter here to talk about Howard Hughes because he is um, such an enigma. There's so many legends about him, which many are not true. And so maybe you've heard of the Spruce Goose. It's the Hughes plane on display. Used to be in Long Beach County. Maybe you remember the James Bond movie. It was based on Howard Hughes. It was even filmed at the Hughes Hotel and Casino. Daisy, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, and which DiCaprio was. There's scores of documentaries of books. I think there's eighty some uh, books written about Howard Hughes. Some of them true, some of them not true. Um, and one of, he was one of the wealthiest men in the world in his lifetime. So, Peter, tell us your experience. How did you get involved and what, what went on in his life? Well, when, when I got involved with Hughes, primarily was when he, when he first left California to go to Boston. He wanted to go on a train, which is kind of an interesting thing just in itself because he was an avid aviator and a, and a fantastic pilot. But for some reason, he wanted to go on a train, and uh, of course, he wanted to go on a private train in a private car, and he was scheduled to leave from Pasadena, 
and uh, typically Hughes is never on time or where he's supposed to be when he says he's going to be mm. in those days. And uh, the express train was coming through from the tracks in Pasadena going to San Francisco, and in those days there were only like one track. And Hughes' car and engine were sitting on the, on that track. Okay. And, and of course, the uh, the rail master, or whatever they call him, the head engineer of the train station, is having a panic because the express is coming up uh, very rapidly from Los, you know, from downtown Los Angeles, and screaming at us to get the Hughes' car moving or get it the hell off the track. And, um, you know, threatening to call the railroad police and move us and, you know, and this is just not acceptable to anyone. So, you know, in my young and, and, and uh, energetic mode, uh, and in those days without very much security around public institutions, we simply went around the building and turned the power off to the railroad station. Oh, really? <laughs> and that stopped the uh, the express train and left Hughes' train in front of the Pasadena Railroad Station until they could get him there, which was probably about a half hour, 45 minutes late. Uh, then power got restored, and he took off, and he went to Boston for, for about a year, year and a half, and then decided he wanted to come to... Actually, he sold TWA at that period of time and received in excess of $500 million, which today doesn't sound like a lot of money, but back in the in the 60s was it was a huge amount of money yeah and it was a huge tax liability so he went to boston and stayed at the ritz carlton for a while and then decided he'd come to las vegas and he came to las vegas on the night of uh thanksgiving eve 1966 and again he wanted to come by train so we made the arrangements for the Hmm. train trip and uh he was traveling again with the, I, I call it a train, but it was one car and his Pullman car. Uh, so it wasn't really a train, it was an engine and a car. But uh, we stopped the train outside of, uh, in North Las Vegas, pretty much in the dead of night, as the stories go, and it was pretty much in the dead of night. And the train actually didn't even know where it was going to be stopped. And we put Mr. Hughes in a van on a stretcher, took him to the Desert Inn Hotel. Um, that time, the front entrance of the Desert Inn, these hotels were a lot smaller back then. There was a side access door that went right to the elevator. And we put Hughes through that access door onto the elevator and up to the ninth floor where he stayed for four years. And why was he on a stretcher, Peter? Well, he wasn't... Well, uh, you know, I, I can't. You, nobody really knows his condition. I mean, his, he, he could talk, he could act, uh, but he was suffering severe pain for a number of years after some airplane accidents in California. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you know, later on, it was found out that, that he was probably unmedicated with, with high-level pain medication at that time. You know, I don't personally know what was going on physically with him. Uh, I know mentally he was very acute at times and very uh, very unacute at times or very confused. Uh, later on, it was learned that his aides were, were providing him uh, a narcotic medication uh, intravenously or, or through, through his uh, fat muscle tissue. And at the time of his death, he had five uh, hypodermic needles broken off in his arm and oh, weighed only God. 90 pounds. So uh, when, you, that, when you moved him there, that was 1966, you said? Yes. He would have been in his 60s at that point. Correct. Yeah. And, and I read somewhere, Peter, that he had a condition, I can't, I don't pronounce it, um, that is a, a, a nerve condition like um, it's a combination of fibromyalgia and several nerve kinds of things. It's evidently very painful. Uh, that's probably true. I mean, he, he, he was in a tremendous amount of pain. Uh, 
and um, he was not mobile as you and I know mobility. Uh, he was he was very inactive. Um, I don't think he walked well. I I don't know that, but I don't think he walked well, and I don't think that he. Uh, you know, we know he never left the room at the Desert Inn Hotel in the four years he was there. Now I understand that the Desert Inn tried to. Uh, evict him, and then he that made him angry, and so he bought the hotel. That's basically the truth. Yeah, well, that's um, nice <laughs> when you have money like that. <laughs> he moved in on Thanksgiving, and of course, New Year's Eve was coming up, and New Year's Eve in Las Vegas was and is a, a huge event, and every room is booked, you know, years in advance, or at least a year in advance, and. The owners of the hotel, who were alleged organized crime members, um, wanted to use out of his penthouse suite because he had the whole top floor of the hotel mm-hmm. and also the majority of the floor below it, the eighth floor. And they needed those rooms for their high rollers or, or big players or whatever term you want to use. Mm-hmm. And Hughes wasn't going to move. He liked it there. Uh, even though he never opened his drapes, he never looked outside. Uh, he, but he liked his room. He liked his, whatever he had there. He liked, and continually made offers on the hotel to buy it. And at that time, the owners of the hotel were under pressure from the Justice Department in Washington to divest their interests, mm-hmm. um, because they all had ties to to. Organized crime groups, uh, and we're maybe or maybe not skimming money from the hotels. Uh, they weren't really actively involved in organized crime activities anymore, but they were involved in, in probably not paying their proper taxes, and uh, the Justice Department wanted them out, so they're receiving extreme pressure for them. And I, I think they just figured out that this is a rare opportunity to sell this hotel. Yeah. Do you know who owned the hotel? It. Do you know who owned it at the time? Mo Dalitz, uh Alad Rowan, um, a few other a few other notorious crack characters. Hmm. Uh, the deals the deal that we made, my dad made, was with between uh Mo Dalitz, who was head of the Cleveland syndicate for a number of years. And uh he was the primary negotiator and owner of the hotel at that time. Interesting. Uh, we'd sit next to an individual called Ice Pick Willie. Really? Who, who was one of Moe's, well, again, I use the word alleged because I don't know that, but alleged uh, enforcers who used to walk into a bar and stick an ice pick in a person's ear. And I got to sit next to Ice Pick during the negotiations. <laughs> My hands over both my ears, <laughs> uh, knowing that these negotiations were at least tense, if not adversarial. Exactly. Dale screaming that he wants you know the dumb whatever off out of his hotel, and my dad saying, "Mo, we'll buy the damn hotel. Just tell us how much you want for it." And going on day and night, day and night, until they could reach a price, and then you know at the final minute, he's tries to lower the price by another few hundred thousand dollars. And, you know, I know we're all going to be killed that night. <laughs> and uh, it was, it's tense, to say the least. I'm sure. And uh, in any event, Hughes ended up acquiring the Desert Inn, and, and then his accountants found out that he could move his TWA sale. He had sold TWA, as I said earlier. They knew he could sell his TWA. He could divert his TWA profits in those years by buying assets like the hotel. Yeah, so right. he wouldn't have to pay taxes on the uh, sale of the TWA stock. So he thought that was just a great thing and he wanted to buy more hotels. Which he did. Oh, that's, that's what started. Okay, so we need to take a break, Peter. We have so much more to talk about. We'll be back in a couple minutes. Thanks, Rich.
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's Choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. here to talk about Howard Hughes, the legend and the man. There are so many stories, so many speculations about Howard Hughes, and, you know, we don't really know what the real truth is. We do know that he was born in 1905. Um, his mother evidently passed away when, she, when he was about 16 or 17, and his father soon after that, a couple years after that. And so at uh, 18 or 19 years old, he took over his father's um, Hughes was it was it Hughes Tool Company or was it, was it another Hughes Tool Company? His father invented a uh, rotating oil drill bit, which is still in use today, by the way, that could drill through uh, hard earth or hard rock, and was genius enough to not sell the drill bit to oil companies, but only lease it. As a result of that, it provided a continuing source of income uh, for, for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the drill bit, I don't know what, I'm sure it's still operating and then probably still being leased. Uh, they never, ever sold a drill bit. Um, and that was a basis for Hughes's fortune. You could, yeah. uh, you just could not spend all the money that was coming from those leases. Uh, and it was coming in every day. Uh, I can't relate it to anything we have today or any type of business model that you know even even compares to it. But it would be similar to us leasing or having to lease our computer systems, you know, no, and having no way to purchase them. So it was reoccurring revenue on a regular basis. And then Hughes uh, was a very bright individual, even though he, he was, you know. A little wacko at times, but he was very bright. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when he was bright, he was brilliant. People tend to forget that uh, Hughes put the first synchronous satellite in orbit around the Earth. That was a Hughes satellite that allows our GPS systems to work today. Interesting. He created the uh, first vehicle that landed on the moon, the Hughes Surveyor, and began actually digging up moon material and analyzing it on the moon and transmitting that information back to Earth. Uh, People forget that he built the Spruce Goose, which is kind of a derogatory term for a fantastic airplane, whose hydraulics were designed by Hughes and are presently in use in the Boeing 747. Hmm. Same hydraulic system. 
here Hughes was at age 19. Uh, he couldn't take over the company. He didn't agree with what was going on with the company, but he couldn't take it over until he was 21. And so he went to court, evidently, and was declared legally an adult, right? That's correct. Yeah. That's correct. And then he became the full owner of the company. <laughs> exactly. At uh, 19 years old. Amazing. He was Amazing. So and, and he smart. wielded that type of, of attitude and power uh, throughout his days in Vegas and probably through, until his death. But, uh, you know, he became an extremely powerful man in, in uh, Nevada. He was the only person ever licensed by the Nevada Gaming Commission that didn't appear before the Gaming Commission. Oh, really? That didn't submit a set of fingerprints to the Gaming Commission, and yet was licensed to own casinos. It was Uh a transition here from from private ownership to corporate ownership, and that changed the whole structure of gaming in Nevada. Prior to Hughes, everything was owned by private individuals. Uh, three, four, two, one, whatever, how many members they had in their controlling group. Mm-hmm. And when he got here, they became owned by different Hughes entities. And it was quite a change for Nevada. But again, Hughes had incredible political power. And in, in those days, uh, cash was king. In the politics world, uh, may still be. I don't know that, but uh, in those days, a lot of cash was transmitted from used to politicians throughout the world to get his way, and and it was perfectly legal. There was nothing wrong with it. Uh, you know, it's probably what started the the trend to start some type of campaign reform that was at least partially wor- workable. Mm-hmm. But uh, and he and he wasn't alone in doing that. I mean, that was a common practice in those days. Probably uh, could not do that today. No, I don't think today would work. But uh, uh, you know, there's still perks that are that are around. And uh, Hughes provided his jet to people. He provided money to people. Uh, we would take money out of the Silver Slipper Casino, put it in a safe in my house and then distribute it to politicians throughout the United States. Hmm. And I'm talking about large sums of money. When you say large, what does that mean, large? In those days, 100000 Which would have been a lot of money. What would that be equal today, I wonder? Maybe a million? To what? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Be equal today, a million dollars? Well, at least. Yeah. At least. But that was not unusual. Again, and then, and again, it was a perfectly legal transaction. Uh, you know, it could be considered something else. It could be influence peddling. It could be considered any number of things today. Uh, in those days, it was, it was a part of doing business. Again, we were pikers mm-hmm. compared to some of the people. Right. Uh, we weren't big donors compared to, to some other folks. You know, he's so interesting, and he had in his, his fingers in so many enterprises. I mean, he was a filmmaker. He made, uh, I think, something like 25 movies. Yep. Um, he was an inventor. Um, I think I read someplace where when he was 11 years old, he built the first wireless or radio transmitter in Houston. He did, and he also built the first motorized bicycle. Yeah, I guess his mother wouldn't let him have a motorcycle, so he got a motor and put it on his bicycle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so and actually, was... at one point, uh, he designed an airplane, which was, uh, he called it a huge racing model airplane, and it held a number of speed records, and he tried to sell it to the United States government, and it was right prior to World War II, and they didn't think it was a good enough plane to buy. And eventually the Japanese ended up with that airplane and became the Japanese Zero. Hmm. And it was actually a Hughes-designed airplane. It was a Japanese Zero. Most people don't even know that. But Yeah, I didn't know that. That's what it became. And uh, I mean, he was a brilliant engineer. There was no question about it. He was a brilliant student of flight and, and, and flight 
person. Uh, well, and, and he, he set a number of records, flying records. Huge records. And, yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I'd probably fly anything that, that was at wings or not wings. Uh, his helicopters, he designed, purchased a product, a helicopter that he used 300 and 500, which anybody that's seen film from Vietnam has seen the used 300 and 500 flying in Vietnam. Uh, I mean, he, he had some brilliant, brilliant things going. I mean, you if know, we just think of our think of our GPS systems today and our yeah. satellite televisions and I was just saying he would be enamored with the unmanned aerial vehicle, vehicles, the drones oh, that we're talking about today. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I guarantee you there would be a used drone that would surpass all the others. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, well, he, probably his biggest record was uh, his flight around the world. Probably. Uh, that he completed. I think it says he completed it in 91 hours, three days and 19 Yeah, he hours. did. Yeah. But but it was interesting, Peter, you were saying how he um, took the train from California to Boston and then back to uh, Nevada. That I wonder if that was a result of the plane accident he had in Beverly Hills. Well, you know, you never know. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but... Uh... You don't know. Maybe maybe you just wanted to see America. Uh, people tend to, 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 when you're dealing with characters like Hughes or people of that stature, to invent things and, and make them real in their mind. And You know, people ask me if I've read this book or that book about Hughes, and I go, why? You know, 90% of what's in those books are, are if not exaggerations, uh, total fallacies. And then... Mm-hmm. You know, people think of something, and then they, they decide, oh, you must have done that. And then it becomes, you know, if you tell the untruth long enough, it becomes the truth. And that happens in a lot of, of, lot, a lot of literature that's not properly researched. Right. Um, but we do know that he was involved in a near-fatal accident um, while flying a plane that, that actually crashed... Um, in the Beverly Hills neighborhood. Right, it crashed in the uh, Los Angeles golf course, actually, right, right in Beverly Hills. And he was, he was pretty badly injured, wasn't he? Pardon me? He was pretty badly in, injured. He was. He was Actually, he was put in a hospital and uh, didn't like the hospital bed, so he designed a new hospital bed, <laughs> had his engineers come over, and they redesigned the hospital bed. Because he needed to move his body for the because of the pain, and that hospital bed became the standard for hospital beds that we're using today. It's amazing. And this is why he's in while he is in probably total agony, suffering from a very major airplane accident where he was severely hurt and could have died. Yeah. Um, but an amazing mind, and people forget that, and they think of the weirdness of use. And, and he was, and he did become weird. There's no question about that. Right. In later life, he became very strange. Now, when you saw him, so um, I saw him briefly, Francie, for just you know, few minutes. Right. Um, when when he was moved into the hotel from the from the train. Right. Um, was he was he awake? Was he talking? What, no, what he was wasn't he talking. He was laying on his stretcher. His head was uncovered. He had a beard. Uh, that's basically all you saw, and only for a couple of seconds. And then the the his personal aides took him upstairs to the ninth floor and got him into his hotel room, and there he stayed. And all his communication from then was done with my dad, either on the phone or in handwritten memorandum. They would write notes back and forth to each other. So you never saw him after that? No. And did your father ever see him after that? No. Interesting. So only his aides? Only his very personal aides. Yeah. And, and that's why there's so many stories about him, because people don't know, and his aides evidently never talked. No, they never did. Well, one did. and uh, One did when he left... Uh, here, one 
one became or remained a very close friend of ours and then would provide us with information of where they were moving him because of the, now they, my dad and Hughes were in a dispute over what the aides had been funneling into Hughes, claiming things that my dad had done and uh, um, making up stories, basically, to, to take control of the Hughes empire. Yeah. And all of those aides were eventually sued by the Hughes Tool Company and litigated against in civil litigation and all lost to civil litigation and owed Hughes Tool Company lots of millions of dollars. For, okay, for, we, we need to take another break, Peter. Yeah. Uh, that's Peter Mayhew. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Today's program features the personal knowledge private investigator Peter Mayhew has about Howard Hughes, the legend and the man. um, So there's a lot of controversy surrounding Howard Hughes' death, uh, i.e. where he died. There's lots of questions about where he actually died. And then the estate turned out to be a huge controversy. That's true. Um, He was in Acapulco staying at the, I believe it was the Acapulco Princess. And again, we had an inside source. My dad had been fired by Hughes at that time and had litigated against Hughes because of, of the slurs that Hughes used in a phone conversation that was televised nationally, uh, slandering my dad. My dad sued and won the lawsuit, um, proving that the statements that were made were not true. But in any event, that's a long story. Well done. Um, But our source within the Hughes camp kept us informed and remained a good friend until actually just a few years ago when he passed, uh, but told us that, that Hughes died. Actually, they were flying him from Acapulco to Houston mm-hmm. to get him to a, to a, trying to get him to a better doctor. Uh, and he died on the flight. And he died on the flight. Um, you know, I, I, I can't tell you that from personal knowledge. I can just tell you that from... Right. You know, a trusted source that I have full faith in. And uh, uh, Hughes was definitely 
mistreated badly uh, by his aides. You don't die at 90 pounds with five broken hypodermic needles. Mm. If you're broken off in your arm, if you're under the care of, you know, good friends and people you're paying. Right. Uh, you know, it was elder abuse at its at its worse and at, and at its uh, I can't even use words despicable. And was that the basis of the lawsuit against the AIDS? No, the lawsuit against the AIDS was was the theft of money, the transference of money. Oh, okay. So that uh, was before he died then. No, it was after he died. It was still after he died. Okay. All right. And um, did the Hughes organization prevail on that? Did you? Yes, think? they did. Okay. And what happened to the, the people involved? Well, they all went their separate ways. They dispersed, and you know, I don't even know where any of them live. And one of them moved to Houston. Uh, the leader moved to Houston, and the rest of them moved around. One of them stayed here. Actually, I think two of them stayed here in Las Vegas. Um, there's about seven of them, and they and they just went their different ways. Hmm. Uh, you know, and they never said anything. And I'm sure that was some part of a contractual agreement that I don't have access to. But they never said anything really. The you know as to what happened and to how he died or why he died or. Uh, you know, I personally feel he died of neglect and abuse. Well, it certainly sounds that way, for sure. Um, it's, it, you know, it was a terrible, terrible thing, and uh, a man of that means should not be put through that agony. Right. Uh, there was no question that he suffered a miserable life at the end. Uh, and, and then, you know, then to get everything settled after that became a huge, huge issue, and stories well, popped up and wills <laughs> popped up. and Yeah, I, a few wills came out of the woodwork. <laughs> yeah, one, all guy, one guy here, Melvin Dumar, uh, owned a gas station about 150 miles out of Vegas, claimed he saw a man walking on the road disheveled in the middle of the night, and he gave him a ride to, back to the hotel, and then it was Hughes. And, you know, nobody knows if he was walking anywhere in those days, much less 150 miles. Right. And then Melvin ended up with a will named in the Hughes will, which became known as the Mormon will uh, because the Mormons supported that will. Ah, uh, okay. And it's all of his days, by the way, were Mormon. Um, and that was because uh, several of the Latter-day Saints people were actively involved in supporting Dumar? Well, you know, I, I, he left the will at the Mormon temple. And that may have been where it got its name. Uh, but there was a lot of support from the Mormon community to support mm. that will. And but then there any was... Event, any event, that will was just thrown out of court a number of times. Um as being, you know, totally, uh, totally, you know, not a, not a real will. Mm-hmm. Well, it, didn't it turn out that he didn't have a will, that all the wills that, that were brought forward were fraudulent? That's correct. Well, they weren't accepted by the court. Okay, they weren't, well, okay, that's You right. know, whether they were fraudulent yeah. or not, it doesn't really matter. They weren't accepted by the courts. Yeah. Uh, you know, and then I don't, know or, or pretend to know what courts do. but um, And one of the women um, actresses, Terry Moore, that he lived with, actually claimed that they'd been married a couple times. That's correct. And she tried to... I think she got a settlement uh, at, yeah. at the end just to, you know, whatever you want to call it, she got a settlement. Yes, uh, I read that she gave them so much trouble that they finally... Gave her something. Well, it's like a lawsuit, Francie. You know, sometimes it's easier just to write a check <laughs> to do the battle. Yeah, for sure. You know, and if you have that kind of money in, in the estate, uh, it's a lot easier to write the check than pay the lawyers. 
Well, you know, it's so unfortunate that a man with such talent that offered that that really offered so many things to this to the world, really, um, that we have today, ended his life in such a horrible state. And so then what you hear about him is the reclusiveness, the, you know, people, the, you know, the long hair, all the stories that you heard about him, and yet he contributed so much. Oh, you're absolutely correct. I mean, there, there's, you know, I don't know. It's, I'm looking at a picture right now on the wall in my office of one of our astronauts walking up to the huge surveyor uh, with a signature to me. It was right where they said it was going to be. And, you know, I'm thinking back as I look at that and say, you know, that was unheard of in those days to put something on the moon. Mm-hmm. And and then to put it where they wanted to put it. And then to have our astronauts go back years later and find it right where it was supposed to be. Was an incredible feat of engineering. Amazing. Just amazing. I'm not sure we could do that today. <laughs> I think that's probably right. You know, it, it's it, it's the the things that he did and created. We'll never reach using all of them. Well, the, I mean, the aircraft. We it's today. like Edison. I mean, yeah, he was exactly. probably more prolific in inventions than Edison, but they were not as widely used. In other words, it was they weren't household items, and even Boeing aircraft. Uh, the Constellation was a huge airplane. Yeah. When TWA wanted to buy new airplanes, uh, Hughes couldn't build them. He wanted to build them, and he, uh, they in those days, if you owned an airline, you couldn't build the airplanes. Hmm. You had to buy your airplanes from somebody else. So Hughes went to Lockheed and designed the Constellation, or helped design it. Lockheed built the planes, and then TWA bought the planes. And, I mean, that was, people remember the Constellation was one heck of an airplane. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was a forerunner of the 747, you know, with the lounge seats and the, right. uh, the little bar. and the, I mean, it was, it was flying in a different era. Yeah, he he was instrumental in, in the design and financing of a number of various kinds of planes. Absolutely. When I, when I read, yeah. He, uh, you know, that was his love was aviation, and uh, you know that that and movies. He loved movies. He bought a TV station in Las Vegas because the TV stations in those days, as some of us will remember, uh, closed at ten o'clock or eleven o'clock. And oh, really? They played in that. You don't remember that. You I don't know, remember I, that. Yeah. They uh, they waved the flag. They'd pull up, pull up, show, show a flag and play the national anthem and close the TV down at 9 or 10 or whatever city you lived in. And Hughes wanted to watch movies on TV. Uh-huh. And from his penthouse. and Well, they weren't going to keep the station running, showing old westerns and... Uh, so he used by the TV station. Then he could call up and say, I want to watch Hell's Angels or I want to watch whatever. Right. And then he'd watch that all night on that station. And it'd be televised to the whole Las Vegas Valley. Uh, but he owned the station, so he could do what he wanted with it. It wasn't by FCC laws the station shut down. It was right. <laughs> just the economics of television at the time. You know, they didn't run, want to run when nobody watched TV. Um, it was, you know, it was an amazing time. Vegas was an amazing city. All these mega resorts were, were baby resorts. They were yeah. small. Yeah. Uh, people forget that. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Now, you know, I didn't know, uh, Peter, about the medical institute that he founded. He did. Is that yeah, still operating? He aircraft to the Howard Hughes Medical Institute, uh, which is located in Miami, which is still considered probably one of the leading research medical institutions in the world and still up and running. But he gave the entire company to them. Hmm. Um, so they, they really benefited from his estate, ultimately. Absolutely. Uh, 
And as I say, the school is still up and running in the Institute, and the research is still going on. Uh, you know, not something we see today. We do some from some people, but I think Bill Gates is a good example of, of a great philanthropist, but there aren't that many left. And uh, Hughes was certainly a leading pioneer in that that sector of our society where he did want to do good. He wanted to do it his way, but he wanted to do good. Yeah, yeah. Um, he wasn't out to destroy people. He was out to to build a better place. You know, um, he's very concerned about nuclear testing in Nevada. Yeah, I think. And everybody thought no, he was crazy. Well, you no know, idea how many benefits we have as a result of his um, innovation and talent and intelligence. You're absolutely right, Francie, yeah. and it goes on and on and on, and we could talk like this for, right. as, as you know, five hours, and I can keep telling you stories. Right. <laughs> I, know. I keep thinking well, of things that he did and that he invented and that he created. And uh, Well, and, Peter, thank you so much for your insight uh, on Howard Hughes. It's fascinating to talk to somebody that actually was involved with him, even though you didn't uh, have a lot of involvement. You certainly were uh, on the, a bystander and involved with his organization. Um, so thanks for joining the show today. We're at the end of our hour. Um, thanks to our loyal sponsor, PI Magazine. And um, tune in. Watch for Peter's show on gaming and organized crime that will be coming up in a few months. Thanks, Reggie. Yeah, tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators like Peter Mayhew. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.